Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I sing of arms and the man. That's how the Roman poet Virgil opened his foundation epic, the Aeneid. More than 2,000 years later, the English First World War poet Wilfred Owen wrote, My subject is war and the pity of war. Plus ça change, you might say, but you can't quite add plus c'est la même chose. Conflict and war, those enduring constants of human existence, are the subjects of naked reflections this week. For a cognition scientist like Caitlin Hitchcock, these aspects of human behaviour are unsurprising and they predate any thoughts of raising an army. Here she is, speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. I think it's important to keep in mind that nobody's perfect. We're human. We argue. We have conflict. To have conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's how we go about resolving it. In fact, there is research that demonstrates that in relationships, a conflict can actually make your relationship stronger if you're able to resolve that conflict. With me to discuss conflict, warfare and relationships are Professor Margaret Macmillan, Professor of International History at the University of Oxford and formerly Warden of St Anthony's College, whose book Paris 1919 is both a classic and a bestseller. Margaret also has a new book coming out shortly called War, How Conflict Has Shaped Us. Very fitting for the focus of today's discussion. And Dr Ben Wilkinson, Director of Research in the Policy Institute at King's College, London, whose areas of research include defence, security, foreign policy, and, interestingly, mental health. His book, Scripts of Terror, came out earlier this year and explores violent extremism in the Middle East up to the Arab Spring. He's currently working on a new book, Assessing the Future of Conflict. Welcome both. So let's begin 
with is war an inevitable component of being human and peace a sort of aberration? Margaret. I don't think it is. And I think if we assume it's inevitable, it's a very dangerous thing to do because we would stop fighting against it. And we would stop, as people have been doing for centuries and centuries, as far back as we can tell, people have been trying to stop war. They've been trying to control it. And I find it dangerous to assume that war is inevitable. There is a large argument which goes on, and I don't think has reached a conclusion, that the need for aggression and the resort to aggression is deeply embedded in human nature. It may well be, and there's a lot of argument about that, that seems to me not to be directly relevant to war. War is, is actually controlled violence. It's not the sort of sudden lashing out that you might get in, in a fight outside a pub or you know between two people who've suddenly lost their tempers. War is probably the most controlled of human activities, which uses violence to achieve certain goals. And so I think war is very much tied up with organized society. Again, we will perhaps never know for sure because it's very difficult to go back into prehistory and collect evidence. But it does seem that once people began to organize themselves into groups, whether these were familiar groups, clans or tribes or even larger units, they began to have things they wanted to defend, including their own people. And of course, once they settled down and engaged in agriculture, they had things that they couldn't pick up easily and move. And so you begin to get war as human society, I think, becomes more organized. But doesn't that suggest that if we're an organized society, war will follow? I don't think it does, because if we're organized, we can also control violence. I mean, one of the great steps forward, I think, is when we began to get larger states that controlled violence within their borders. Ms. Hobbes said they got a monopoly of the violence within their borders. And this was, in fact, a way to produce a more peaceful society. I mean, if you think of what it must have been like to live before there was a strong state, when you were at the mercy of every local thug and bandit. I mean, we see what's happened in failed states today. I think it's very clear what happens when you, when you don't have central authority. So, no, I don't think war is a natural part of human society, but I do think it's deeply embedded in human society, and, and the growth and development of human society has been very much affected by war. So, Ben, help us out. Do you agree? And what's the difference between war being embedded in society and war not being part of the organisation of society? No, I, I think I, I uh, broadly agree with Margaret. I mean, there's this sort of theory, isn't there, from people like Stephen Pinker and so on, that um, since 45, the, the long peace has led to the sort of better angels of our nature coming through, helping us control our sort of base urge to fight with one another. And, to, and the number of wars and the number of people dying from wars has reduced dramatically. And he says, you know, this is a part of a trend towards a sort of more peaceful society. It's the effects of society normalizing itself away from conflict and war. And there's a kind of big debate that goes on about whether that sort of is true or not. But certainly the, the idea that, that society should be able to sort of self-regulate against conflict and tries to do so is a powerful argument. In my view, that's the way that things are sort of going. I guess the question is what the wars of the future will be like and how they will change that, whether they will be more system-oriented wars or more people oriented wars, whether you can sort of draw a trend from the last 40, 50, 60 years going forwards on that is a kind of critical question. Well, before we look at the future, let's look at the past. Margaret, you did a great deal of work on the 1919 Peace Conference. Tell us a little bit about that and what you think makes a good peacemaker. Making peace is very difficult indeed, because it leaves such great passions behind and a desire for revenge. But I think what was the case in 1919, and certainly in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, 
was that the people who met to make peace had been given a real scare. I mean, they had seen the possibility of their civilization collapsing. And they were afraid, in fact, if they didn't move quickly to establish peace, there would be even more anarchy as they looked towards what was happening in Russia and in the center of Europe and even closer to home. And so I think they were trying very hard, not, we know, with success, to build an international order based on the principles which Woodrow Wilson enunciated to try and contain war, prevent war, develop a sense of collective and a practice of collective security for nations. And I can see you nodding there. I completely agree. And I was just thinking about you know the foundation of organisations like NATO. The founding articles of NATO only had a 10-year vision to it. You know, the very first thing is we'll review this in 10 years' time. And actually, it's kind of interesting looking back that NATO, 70 years on, is sort of still embodying some of that sort of collective defence, sort of safer society, a safer world sort of prospect. Now, I think you're absolutely right with the, the idea that the peacemakers are about leaving dearly held beliefs behind and looking for alternatives. But what comes out of Margaret's comment is that we need to have experienced the horror of war to realise how we get beyond it. That seems to be the implication of what you say. I remember Prince Hassan, who's one of the patrons of the Wolf Institute, talking about the need to take advantage of outbursts of peace. I mean, that's a rather depressing thought, isn't it? Well, it is a bit. And I do think it's very important, partly through education, to remind people of what war looks like. I mean, the further away a war gets or the further away it is geographically, the more glamorous it can look. And that, I think, is very dangerous indeed. And the impetus that lay behind the formation of the United Nations and earlier the League of Nations was to prevent a great war ever happening again. And the further away we get from it, I think we forget just how much we needed it. And I think when we get on to talking about the future of war, I mean, the risks out there, it seems to me, are absolutely enormous. But Ben, of course, will will know more about this than I do. The best way of thinking about it is to think about some of the potential risks. And I think those come in two or three colours or flavours, if you like. So the first is the development of a new technology that enables the holder of that technology to wreak destruction beyond other players in the international security system. That's what traditionally people have worried about. So the development of nuclear weapons is a classic example of that. There are similar things that people worry about over things like biohacking and all of these different sorts of technologies. So that's one that is definitely a worry is the brand new technology or the development of a technology that makes it sort of potentially catastrophic. The second flavor is of the kind of mistake. And this has sort of gone out of vogue a little bit, but the idea that a single mistake, a miscalculation could create mass havoc. And this is sort of behind some of these conspiracies theories to do with COVID, about whether it was sort of deliberately leaked or accidentally leaked and all of these things. The third one, which is less about conflict, but may produce conflict-like situations, is lots of people not making the right decision. And this is where things like climate change, AI, information, and so on come into play. So I think there are probably different ways that the future of conflict, or different directions that it might take, and different areas that you might think about it sort of playing out. Like long history of conflict, it's focused on the individual human. But increasingly, I wonder whether wars will move on to systems. So you you wipe out entire systems that humans rely upon now. Previously, you know, things like agriculture have been the case, but now we're so reliant on things like the internet, on basic provision of services like that. And you can see that being able to capture or control those would be catastrophic. Does that echo some of the research that you've done, Margaret, in terms of the sort of post-First World War, the concerns that people had that war was out of their own control? Yes, I think. And I think the more they studied the origins of the First World War, the more they got worried because it looked like none of those who finally made the decisions knew what it was going to be like. They should have known, but they really didn't have a proper grasp on what war was going to be like between industrialized societies. And they blundered into it and then found they couldn't get out of it. I mean, the danger about any war is you start it 
and it takes on its own momentum. As Clausewitz said, it has its own logic and it's very hard to stop. I mean, what I worry about, and, and I'd love to hear what Ben thinks, is decisions being taken out of control of humans, systems being set up, which will make the decisions without anyone being able to intervene. And that worries me. I mean, it seems to me also that at one end, we have this possibility of very high tech war. At the other, we have these low level civil wars, which go on killing huge numbers of people, which are basically being fought with weapons that could have been used 100, 200, 300 years ago. I mean, machetes and hoes can do an awful lot of damage. You don't even need guns. I think that's spot on, Margaret. People ask, you know, how much will technology be involved in the war of the future? My not very good answer is either an awful lot or not very much at all, but probably not somewhere in the middle. I think the wars will either be high tech or they'll be low tech. I guess that the future of that is looking at these sort of systems which are self-governing. So there's a big move in defence procurement towards automation, drones that can self-identify the type of targets thereafter. You know, these are not actually a million miles away. Facial recognition is already taking place. Could you take all the decision making out of the hands of human beings? And can you go from that onto a kind of virtual warfare state? And I think some of this gets quite far-fetched quite quickly. But the problem is not so much that it gets far-fetched. The real problem is that there is automation going on. And it's whether it becomes self-guiding, that's the real issue. Wars that I've looked at in the past have always had this interest in thinking about first strike, that decisive knockout blow, the first mover advantage. Was that part of the decision making at the beginning of the First World War? Or was it off the cards? Was there acknowledgement that this would be a sort of global thing? There wouldn't be a first strike. I think the first is true, that there was thinking about a first strike. Every major European army had plans which were offensive. Virtually none had defensive plans, which doesn't mean you're going to attack first, but it means you're thinking in terms of getting in there and getting the decisive victory. In my view, at least, what also counted was the fear that if they didn't fight at a certain time, they wouldn't be able to fight later. In the German high command, there had been concern for a number of years, and it's certainly there in 1914, that Russia was industrializing so fast and developing so fast, and of course, had a much greater pool of manpower, that the Germans would not be able to fight it by 1917. So if they were going to fight, they better do it right away. It's the same reasoning the Japanese military used in 1941. If you're going to fight the US, we're going to have to do it now because otherwise we won't have a chance. So that's one of the things that comes out in studies of future conflict now as well, I guess, which is one side getting this or potentially getting this game changing technology will mean that actually you you get the war that everyone's dodging come earlier. So country X suddenly gets the ability to to have that decisive first blow and country Y says, well, before you get it, we're going to go for it. So you try and cut through the arms race before it happens. The Germans built battleships. The British built the dreadnought. French built wonderful artillery. The Germans built better and, and so on. And that's the danger. And and the temptation is when you think you have the edge, you don't necessarily want to make a war, but you think if we're going to do it, we better do it now. So I think you're psychologically more prepared for it. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. And my guests this week are Margaret Macmillan and Ben Wilkinson. And we're discussing conflict and warfare. It's often rather chillingly said that war provides opportunities for innovation and, ironically, creativity. Here's Craig Murray of the Imperial War Museum in Duxford speaking on the Naked Scientists. Aircraft um, technology moves massively quick from the Wright brothers. Even in the First World War, you're going from the Wright brothers, something that was essentially flying at walking pace almost, to fighters that can fly at 100 miles an hour in the space of maybe 10 years or so. So it has jumped exponentially very, very quickly. Ben, how much truth is there in the assertion that war can lead to positive scientific or medical development? Well, I think there is there is some. I don't think that's necessarily a reason to conduct a war. So wars focus the mind. They give 
countries at single mission and normally large sums of money follow. And because you have both money and mission, a whole set of things that you need get accelerated and come through quickly. And the classic example of this is penicillin in the Second World War. There was, rather my story, there was there was just enough dose in 1940-odd for one police officer who had septicemia. He got better. They ran out of the dose and he got sick. And I think he then died. But with the advent of, of the war, there was a mass sort of effort to, to produce it. And within a couple of years, they produced millions and millions of doses of it. And as a consequence, you know, you, you create these systems, which with money and mission, uh, you can then replicate even after the war. There are scientific uh, benefits too. the obvious examples being things like turbines, GPS, uh, things that have come out of DARPA. There's a, there's a long history of these things, but they really just come about they're byproducts rather than the core purpose of things. It's not like you go to war in order to create penicillin. You, you go to war in order to create your mission. And one of the byproducts is that you have smooth systems for bringing penicillin across the world. Yes, that's right. But if we try and bring things up to date a little bit, there are a number of columnists who draw comparisons between the 1930s and, and the aftermath of the Second World War and today. I mean, how accurate do you think they are? And I'll turn to you, Ben, initially, because you've been doing quite a lot of research on contemporary warfare as well as the future of war. I, I definitely feel shy talking about in historical terms in front of Margaret, um, who's going to be far more specialist than that than I am. The parallel that I note the most is this sort of the beginnings, the embryonic bit of, a, of an arms race. If you have a look at defence spending at the moment, it's creeping up and there is a sort of tit for tat. NATO members increase it a bit, try and catch up with uh, rivals China and Russia, who then also increase it. And one of the worries is that we've seen the byproducts of uh, increased spending, but you also create new technologies. So one of the big worries about these arms races is they create uncertainty in the system. And I, Margaret will correct me, but my understanding from the 30s is that that kind of uncertainty, that rapid industrialization and arms race was one of the driving forces. No, I think you're absolutely right. I'm always wary of historical parallels because Yes, some things are the same, but so many things are different. And of course, we know today what happened in the 30s. So that affects, in some cases, our thinking or, thinking, or should affect our thinking. But I think what was also happening in the 1930s was, of course, it was a time of tremendous strain. Societies, some of them had been very, very hard hit by the Great Depression. The United States, Germany, Britain were all particularly hard hit and others were hit as well. And I think that tended to produce a move to the extremes of politics, either to the right or the left. And it tended to encourage and support populist leaders who promised to solve all problems easily. And what I think we're getting something the same today. I mean, you know, the, the rise of the strong populists, pretty much all men, as far as I can see. I, I make no comment on the gender issue here, but it is interesting. I think it's dangerous because they will often not just appeal to their own people with promises, but they'll find an external enemy. And it worries me too that the rhetoric is creeping up, and that was happening in the 30s as well. Leaders start making these public statements and, and whipping up public feeling against others, like Trump is doing with the Kung flu, and the Chinese leadership is doing, which is suggesting the CIA had something to do with the COVID-19 virus, then I think that's very dangerous because they set in motion forces that they can't always control. And so there are echoes, I think, of the 1930s. Um, we have to hope that the institutions and eventually the leadership will be stronger than it was in the 1930s. Now, some of your work, Margaret, and I'm sure it's true also of Ben, calls for a certain sense of nuance identifying the complexity of historical events, the multiplicity of reasons conflicts and, and warfare develop. In the face of the rise of populism and extremist language in politics and in wider society, what do we as teachers, if you like, what can we actually do about that? 
My last book focused on this idea, which I call uh, strategic scripts. And the idea is that scripts are little stories about the future and you build them up over time. And then faced with an uncertain situation, you know, you draw on your previous experience and you borrow a script from the past. And all of these scripts are just little stories. And and you can see them scattered across history of international politics, you know, um, the revolution scripts, the terrorism scripts, all of these are just scripts. And one of the things that you look at is that Almost all of the people who deploy them base their experience on some past story that they've heard. So the classic one I looked at was um, it was Bin Laden's rationale for moving into Afghanistan was based a bit around uh, the uprising and the Black Hawk Down in 1995 in Somalia. And if you look at how he talks about the story, he's completely wrong. He says, I'm going to do this because it worked over there. And it didn't at all. His sort of complete misperception about that story underpinned most of his strategy going forward. And, and one of the things that I came out with the book is to caution against stories, because they're very, uh, they lull you into a sort of full sense of security. You could watch any James Bond, and I can guarantee you James Bond will not die at the end of a James Bond film, but you'll still want to watch it because it's compelling. And stories as compelling sort of narratives, we want to kind of copy them. And they're pretty dangerous because by and large, stories narrow the distance between cause and effect. You can riff off them, you can get them wrong, they're misleading. And, and that's exactly why we need academics in the space because they give you a more nuanced story a longer story one that says well actually part of the reason that happened was this complete blind bit of luck i've always had this this caution around stories fascinated by them but don't necessarily base big life choices around them no i completely agree because i think they become traps and i I don't know if you've seen that very interesting book by un phone kong called analogies at war where he talks about the use of the appeasement analogy and how it shaped american thinking about Vietnam. It's so interesting. I mean, the example I remember from it is, I think in 65, they were talking about whether to escalate considerably in Vietnam with American forces. And in the State Department and in in the inner circles of government, people kept on saying, we mustn't do what they did in the 30s. We mustn't try and appease, you know, the dictators, the Chinese are behind the North Vietnamese, which we now know isn't true and always a much more complicated relationship. There was one opponent, George Ball, who said, look, there's another analogy we should be looking at in, in Indochina. And that's what happened to the French when they fought their war between 1947 and 1954. And everyone said, no, 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 that's the wrong one. In fact, it probably was the right one. And so I think these stories and analogies can become traps. I'd like to push back a little bit on that because uh, stories, narratives are very much part of human existence from uh, biblical times to the present day. We, We need our myths. We need our narratives. It's part of what makes us human. So surely the issue is less about giving up on the narratives, but about showing the complexity of the multiplicity of narratives, that it's a lot more complicated. The danger is highlighting just one narrative above all others. I think that's spot on. There is a natural cognitive desire to go to stories and you you can't get around that. How else are you meant to make a decision? The, The brain is designed to build on past experience and so on. The problem is when you base it on either just one story or when you get that story wrong or whether, you know, you say in that story, X led to Y led to Z. Z. So if I do that again, exactly the same thing will happen. You need complexity in the stories, but also complexity around the, the analogies you draw between them. That's the important bit. Margaret, your book that's coming out shortly, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, is very relevant to our conversation right now. And tell us about it. Well, it grew out of some lectures I gave. It was a great honor to give the Reese lectures to the BBC. And we discussed various topics. And and I don't know, I think I came up with it. I said, well, what about something on war? And they hadn't done it. If you do the history of the 19th and 20th centuries, or even go further back, war is always there in some way or other. And I've always been interested in war. And I used to teach courses in war and society. So 
that's what I did them on. And I became very interested in this whole idea of how much war has shaped human societies. And I keep on saying I'm not defending war. I'm just trying to understand what it means for us because it's affected our arts, our social organizations. It's brought changes in the position of women and the working class. It's, you know, war has been something that has had an enormous impact for better and often, of course, for worse on our societies. There's a very interesting book by Walter Scheidel from Stanford who argues that when we've had great wars, it has actually resulted in the compression between the rich and the poor, that it has in a dreadful way had a beneficial result on societies because it's helped to bring the poles closer together and benefited the working class and, and the lower middle classes. So war, I think, has shaped us. And, and think of our culture. I mean, think of the books, the pet movies, the paintings, the poetry that's come out of war. I mean, it's been very much part of our shared experience. And also the question of gender, Margaret, because war has had an enormous impact on the role of women in, in employment uh, and so on. War seems so heavily gendered. Is that still as much the case now as it ever was? I think there's been a real attempt by modern militaries to try and, and bring women in. I mean, it used to be that you could bring women in to support roles, but not combat roles. And that's now gradually shifting there's a lot of very interesting discussion, and I, again, it's not conclusive, about why it is that for most of history, 99.9% .9 of those fighting have been men. Is it cultural? Is it genetic? Or is it something in between? And, and I don't think there's any conclusive argument. And there's certainly examples in the past of successful women warriors. I mean, they now think, after a lot of archaeological research, that they really were the equivalent of Amazons. It wasn't just a Greek myth. They have found burial sites around the north shore of the Black Sea of women, skeletons of women who are dressed in, in full military gear. So it looks like it may be more cultural, but it's an open field, a very important field. And I think if women are full parts of society, they should be able to choose careers in the military if they want. There's been resistance from men quite often. I mean, there, was, there was a you know, resistance, you know, women are going to change it all and they're going, to, you know, they're going to be worrying about their fingernails, which I think is deeply patronizing and, and wrong. You know, I'd like to see a world where nobody has to fight. But if we're all if we're going to expect young men to fight, then I think young women should have the same opportunity if they want it. Another area uh, that we haven't touched on, but I know something you've been working on, Ben, is the question of mental health and war and how war takes its toll. But tell us a little bit about that. I think it's a really important area. It's a sort of logical extension of a point we touched on earlier about the sort of duality of war on the one hand being mayhem, misery creating phenomenon, on the other being a sort of noble pursuit of people to go and conduct fighting on behalf of their families, their friends, their country. And I guess this comes in three or four different layers. So the most obvious is that people who are conducting the war itself, the, the soldiers and their mental health and things like PTSD. There is a second layer, which is the people who are, you know, the victims, not necessarily the perpetrators of it, but the victims, people who are caught up in the middle and sort of uh, their mental health. And I think there's a sort of third layer, which is a little bit less, less work has been done on, although it is beginning to build up in the wake of uh, other disasters and um, things like terrorist attacks, which is sort of social mental health or community mental health. And how a conflict can change the mental health of whole sets of communities, how people react to it, and whether there are interventions that governments can provide to direct it one way or the other. The classic example was the mental health of the population during the Second World War and the idea of the sort of myth of the panic-prone public. And that sort of underscored a series of studies in the wake of 9-11 um, and 7-7 about how those attacks influenced people's mental health and you know created anxiety and worry about 
travel, you know, do you feel able to move and all of these just sort of different aspects. So I guess there are lots of different layers at which mental health cuts across um, war and conflict and the different types of war and conflict. And I guess one of the things when thinking a bit about the wars of the future is if that will become part of a, an enemy strategy, if you like, is to be able to influence or guide a population's mental health. If you can kind of control it psychologically, if you can control a population psychologically, which is how terrorism is effectively meant to work, you can actually get quite a lot of leverage over an opposition government. And it's one of the areas, hasn't been done, a vast amount of work done on it, but it's kind of like a growth area. That's so interesting, because in fact, if you look back through the history of war, that's quite often what people have tried to do to the other side, is to destroy them psychologically. When you besieged a town, you would often make terrible threats about what's going to happen. When we finally get in, the streets will run with blood and, and your yeah. babies will be killed. And you know this sort of terrifying the other side, I think, is very important. And, and that was, of course, part of the purpose of bombing in the Second World War, was, was to destroy civilian morale. I mean, the, the British bomber command, Bomber Harris, thought that he could force the Germans out of the war by making it psychologically impossible for the Germans to continue on supporting the war effort. So I think it's a fascinating field. And, and, and as, again, like physical health, as you say, we've learned a lot about mental health from studying the impacts of war on people. And again, we wouldn't choose to do it that way, but I think we have actually learned quite a bit. I agree. There's an interesting crossover in thinking about the wars of the future, about the roles of things like information, disinformation and misinformation campaigns and how you can create a sort of anxious society. You can imagine enemy governments, rival governments, really building up misinformation campaigns to try and vex a population to the point where they begin to argue with their own government for a policy change or you, you know, you go after the population and the population then do the do the leverage on the government for you. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I think governments tried to do that with leaflets and megaphones in earlier wars, but this is now so much more sophisticated. And, you know, I think all the evidence that's coming out about way that the ways in which the, the Russians and the Chinese are using disinformation and, and spreading rumours and, and trying to destroy the faith that people have in their own governments. I can see this is going to expand enormously and, and the methods they use are going to get more sophisticated, I suspect. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Not too much conflict here between my guests, Margaret Macmillan and Ben Wilkinson, to whom many thanks indeed. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any thoughts, comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.